Well, good morning. Thank you for joining us on this Lord's Day as we return to the, the book of Esther. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your grace and for your mercy. Thank you for loving us so that you sent your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to live what we could not live, to die what we deserve, and to rise from the dead, showing that his perfect obedience was accepted by the Father. We thank you that you have called us by name as one of your own, whom you have loved from the foundations of the world. We thank you that there was never a time when you began to begin to love us, but that you have loved us with an everlasting love. Lord, give to us this morning expositional ears. Give to us this morning hearts that are softened to the truth of your word, to the piercing sword of your word. Cut through joint and marrow. Divide, Lord, to the very thoughts and intentions of our hearts. Lord, I decrease so that you may increase. I become less so that you can become more. Move me out of the way this morning and let you and you alone be seen, heard. And Father, we thank you that this will all be done for your glory and for the sake of Christ and for the good of your people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you were here with us last week, <clears throat> you remember that we, we sprinted through the entire book of Esther, summarizing the, the story as a whole. And with the help of God, we were able to get a, a panoramic view, if you will, of the book of Esther, seeing the overall narrative. So as I ask you to turn to the book of Esther, you may be asking, didn't we finish the book of Esther last week? Didn't we get through the entire entire book of Esther? And we return to the book of Esther and to the beginning of the book of Esther because it is very easy for us to, to move on from that book after getting a nice summary, a, a complete overlook of all of the details. And we could overlook all of the details that the Holy Spirit intentionally placed in this book. For his glory and for our good. Let me encourage you with something this morning, if I may. We must seek to be people who learn the joy. And I'll say it slower. We must seek to be people who learn the joy of wrestling with text. Who learn the joy of grappling with text. We must avoid being people who rush to the next text because we don't immediately understand the text that lies before us. Or even because we've read through the text. So now let's move on to the next one. And sometimes completely really gaining a sense, a full sense of all. And we could never gain a full sense of all that the Holy Spirit wants us to gain. But, but gaining a full sense, a fuller sense, a better sense of the text that lies before us. Brothers and sisters, let us not be so hasty or impatient when it comes to the scriptures. Let me encourage you again. Grapple with text. 
Walk patiently through texts. And when you come to a text, pause. Think hard about those texts. Remember 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is God-breathed. Therefore, there is nothing accidental in scripture. And there is nothing also incidental in scripture. Every word is from God. Every single word. Is from God. This is also true for the book of Esther. Nothing in the book of Esther is accidental. Nothing in the book of Esther is incidental. So although we have sprinted last week through the book of Esther. We will now stroll through the book of Esther. We will now stop and smell the roses. If you will. In the book of Esther. With that said, let us stand for the reading of God's word, Esther chapter 1, and we'll go all the way to chapter 2. Now, in the days of King Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast For all his officials and servants, the army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the princes were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and splendor and pomp and his of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small. A feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels Vessels of different kinds and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king and drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus on the seventh day. When the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mithumah, Bizta, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abgatha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the, prince, in the presence of the king Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown, in order to show the peoples and princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment. The men next to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meris, Marsina, and Memucan the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, here's what he asked, 
What is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Then Memucan said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt. Since they will say King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials and they will be contempt and wrath and plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may be so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes. And the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script. And to every people in its own language, that every man must be master in his own house, household, and speak according to the language of his people. Now, hold on. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young women who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. The word of God, those who have ears to hear are blessed to hear what the spirit of God says. Please have a seat. Now, the scene is set. King Ahasuerus showing off his wealth, showing off his power. He gives a, a feast for all of his leading officials for 180 days. And then he tops it off or caps it off with a seven-day climax. You might have noticed in verse 9 that Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women who were in the palace. But even that feast belonged to King Ahasuerus. Now, this may seem like a minor note in this story, but it is a major note in the grand scheme of things, and it is a major note in redemptive history. What am I talking about? The king calls his queen to come and to display her beauty before he and his drunken guest. And Queen Vashti refuses to come to be degraded by her husband and these drunken men. It is possible that this is not the first time that King Ahasuerus has degraded his wife in such a way. And it is possible that she's finally had enough. 
It is also possible that this is the first time that he has suggested or commanded such a thing and that she will not lower herself or stoop herself to that level. Whatever the reasoning may be, she refuses. And her refusal to be a pawn in the game of King Ahasuerus sets the course of the rest of this story and the rest of redemptive history. Now, slow down again. We must not quickly read past this point because it's a very important point. Without Queen Vashti refusing to come to be ogled at by her drunken husband and his drunken guest, she would not be removed from the throne. Which means that there would be no nationwide beauty contest. Which means that there would be no need for Esther. And there would be no need for Mordecai in this story. Which means that there is no Mordecai overhearing a plot to assassinate the king. And also no Mordecai making that plot known and saving the king's life. Which means that there is no stopping Haman from destroying the Jews. And which ultimately means that there is therefore no fulfillment of the promise of God to bring forth a deliverer from the nation of Israel. Do you see how that one decision of Queen Vashti, it affects all of redemptive history? Do you see the domino effects there? One decision from Queen Vashti, all of the these major events come from one pagan woman's refusal to obey the command and be disgraced by her pagan husband. Do you see that? The king is furious at her refusal to come to him. And he takes the queen's disobedience to his counselors, seeking their advice about what must be done to an insubordinate woman. What are we to do? We can't have a disobedient wife Then there'll be disobedient wives all over the world or all over the the kingdom, right? This will spread. Everyone will see what Queen Vashti will have done. All the women will see, well, if the queen can get away with this with her husband, then I surely can get away with this with you. You're no one. The counselors of the king make a suggestion. Remove this disobedient woman. Remove her. And then all of the women will know that disobeying their their husbands will not be tolerated in the kingdom. Verse 19, Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she or someone who will do what Vashti will not do. The king agrees and sends letters to all the provinces in all of their languages. And here's what it says. Essentially, Queen Vashti is no more Because disobedience will not be tolerated by any man or by any woman to her husband. And then, interestingly enough, after this, we don't hear anything else of Vashti. The rest of this book, she is no more. For the rest of the book of Esther, Vashti has virtually disappeared. She's been removed from the throne and she's been removed from the book of Esther. There is now a void on the throne. Who will replace Vashti? The young men who served the king suggested, again, a nationwide beauty contest in search for a new queen. The king, pleased at the suggestion, allows his servants to go and seek out for him a new queen. Now, 
this appears to be the gist of chapter one, doesn't it? This appears to be what chapter one is all about. Brothers and sisters, I would like you to think for a moment. After you left last week and someone asked you, what was that all about? What did you get out of all of that? What was your response? One little boy said to me, I loved how how Haman got hanged. The the young people were sitting with us last week. What is the book of Esther really all about? What is the book of Esther really? What's it really all about? The author has a story to tell. And he begins to draw you into that story. First with a display of great wealth and luxury. Put on by the most powerful man of that day, Ahasuerus, king of mighty Persia. The author will also begin to lead us to another story. The story of a Jewish maiden who will capture the heart of the mighty king. And there's also another story. There's a story of Mordecai who shows his loyalty to the king. And there's also the story of Haman. There are stories within the story of the book of Esther. And Esther will in due time become the hope of her people for deliverance from annihilation. The book of Esther is very curious, though, isn't it? There are there are a lot of questions that should arise. How many of you went home and read the the book of Esther when you went home? Just one. Praise God for one saved person. The book of Esther is a curious book, is it not? There are a number of questions that arise as you read the book of Esther, isn't there? For example, there's the curious fact that a Jewish maiden, Esther, would allow herself to become part of the harem of the king. You know what a harem is? The harem is a separate part of a palace that is reserved for concubines and wives. That a Jewish maiden would allow herself to become a part of the harem. That she would take part in this beauty contest. What do you make of that? At best, she will become the one to follow Queen Esther. And at worst, she will be just another concubine in the king's harem. There's also the curious fact that the name of God is never mentioned in the book of Esther. What do you make of that? There's also the fact that there is no mention ever in the book of Esther of prayer. What do you make of that? And why does Mordecai command Esther to keep her nation and her people a secret? What do you make of that? We're not told the answers to any of these curiosities. And I'm sure that the one person who did go home and read the book probably had some questions that arose when he did read. But more significantly, and here's where I really want us to begin to focus, what are we to make of the absence of any mention or any reference of the promised seed of Abraham in the book of Esther? There is no mention of the Messiah in the book of Esther. There is no mention of the Lord Jesus Christ in the entire book of Esther. Turn with me, please, or turn, please, to the book of Luke, chapter 24. I'd like you to see something that is another curiosity. Luke 24. In Luke 24, after the resurrection, 
two of the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ are headed toward Emmaus. As they talked, as they walked, they talked about the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and all of the things that had happened and transpired over the past three days. When the Lord Jesus drew near to them as they were walking, he said to them in verse 17, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? What are you talking about? Now, these disciples were kept from recognizing the Lord Jesus Christ. And they said to him, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? And our Lord replied, what things? What things are you talking about? As they spoke about the death of Christ, they said in verse 21, we had hoped. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped he is dead now. Do you not know what's happened in all of Israel? He's dead. The one that we were hoping for, the the hope of Israel. He is no more. And our Lord responded in verse 25. Oh, foolish ones. And slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Listen to this in verse 27. Listen to this. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets. And and here now he interpret he interpreted to them all the scriptures. If you're taking notes, all of the scriptures, the things concerning himself. In all of the scriptures? Then I have a question. Where is the Lord Jesus Christ in the book of Esther? What did Jesus teach those disciples, his disciples, from Esther? Concerning himself. If Jesus is nowhere mentioned, the promised seed of Abraham is nowhere mentioned in the book of Esther, what in the world did Jesus teach his disciples Concerning himself in the book of Esther. As he explained, as he explicated all of the scriptures to his disciples. What is then the great subject of the book of Esther? You've heard the story in summary. You may have gone home and read it yourself. So then what do you say? What is the great story? What is the great subject of the book of Esther? Is the main point... A mighty man whose heart was captured by a a Jewish maiden. Is the main point of the story how Haman got what he deserved? Or maybe it is the exaltation of Mordecai who finally received favor after all of the years that he cared for his cousin Esther. What is the great subject of the book of Esther? I would like to suggest to you just three Of the great subjects of the book of Esther. Number one. The great subject of the book of Esther is. The sovereignty of God. The great subject of the book of Esther is. The sovereignty of God. Brothers and sisters. God's sovereignty. Listen close. Is complete. It is not cut short. It is not interrupted. There is no thing. That God is not sovereign of in all of the universe. There is nothing in all of existence that is not under the sovereign hand of Almighty God. Even the refusal of Queen Esther to be disgraced by her husband is under the sovereignty of God 
and even a nationwide beauty contest is under the sovereign hand of God. All of these things functioning under the sovereign Lord of the universe. Now, I got to ask you a question. Do you ever think about that or life in that way? Do you think about life in that way, that all things are under the sovereign hand of God? Or do you tend to relate God's presence, God's power, and God's sovereignty to his church and only his church? Where does the hand, the sovereign hand of God, not reach? Is there any place? Is there any any place in all of the universe, in all of the happenings of our lives, is there any place that the sovereign hand of God is not reaching toward or is not in control of? The Bible says in Psalm 135, 6, what the, the Lord pleases, or what pleases the Lord, he does in heaven and in the earth, in the seas and in all of the depths. God has plans. God has purposes. All things are working out together for his great plans and for his great purposes. God has a plan to save his people from genocide. He has a plan to save his people from wicked men. And how will that be accomplished? In the most unexpected of ways. Through a nationwide beauty contest. God uses the most surprising means to bring about his purposes in this world. God wants to save his people. How will he do it? Through a beauty contest. The book of Esther, if nothing less, teaches us that we are not isolated from God in all of the events of life. That all of the events of life are not isolated from God. God is in control of all of these things. When you drive home, God is sovereign over that. When you take a nap, God is sovereign over that. When you go to work, God is sovereign over that. When you sit in church today, right here, right now, God is sovereign over that. Even the seemingly ordinary or even ridiculous Events of life, like a nationwide beauty contest, are under the sovereign control of God. We are quickly approaching our nation's election. And if you've been following the build-up to so-called Super Tuesday, you may be asking yourself in disgust, what is this nation coming to? One of these, one of these will be our new chief for the next four years and possibly for the next eight years. God forbid. We must say, not only in times like those that are quickly approaching, but even in our everyday lives, we must say with eyes and conviction of faith, Our God is in the midst of all of those things. 
Our God is in the midst of all of those things. He is forwarding his plans and purposes. And it will be. It will be good. And it will be good. Because he does all things well. Hard to say, right? Especially now, with our options. Hard to say. God is forwarding his plans and it will be good. Because he does all things well. God is not aloof from the events of this world. He is actively involved in every event in this world. He is planning. He is fulfilling. He is directing. He is bringing to pass his purposes. And, dear ones, we don't need to understand it all. You hear that? He's planning. He's forwarding. And the most difficult thing for us is to sit back and say, I don't know what's happening. We want to know. But we often want to know more than we need to know. Right? Especially when it comes to God. And what are you doing, God? Why this? Why now? And God does not wave a flag and say, hold on, I'm here. Let me explain to you what's going on. It almost appears at times that God is hidden, that he is invisible. But as I said last week, God is most on the field. Even when it seems that he is most invisible. Remember when the disciples of Jesus asked Jesus after the resurrection, Lord Jesus, are you now going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Remember that? And what was his response? Acts 1, 7 It is not for you to know the times or seasons from the father. He has fixed by his own authority the times and seasons. Lord, is now the time? Are you going to now accomplish and bring forth your kingdom? Here's his response. That's none of your business. You are on a need to know basis and you don't need to know. Do you like that in life? When there are things happening And you have no control over what's happening. You don't even, you have no control over the fact that you have no information about what's happening. Not only do you not control what's happening, but you also have no information about what's happening. It's just happening. Do you like those times? No. But those are the times that we really learn what it means to live by faith and not by sight. Those are the times, though it be difficult, though it be hard, though it often be frustrating. Those are the times that we truly learn what it means to live by faith and not by sight. It is to refuse, refuse to have our lives shaped by circumstances, but rather to have our lives shaped by God and our faith in him, who he is, what he is all about in this world. In the book of Esther, God is nowhere mentioned, but he is everywhere found. Behind the scenes, God has ordered and ordained human history to accomplish his own perfect will and decree. God is in control. And again, it it is difficult for us because it seems like he's nowhere to be found. He does not wave a flag and say, here I am, here I am. And we might feel a whole lot better if he did, right? We might feel a whole lot at peace if he did say, here I am, I'm here. But he doesn't do that. 
Why? Because he expects his people, you and I, who have placed our faith in Christ alone, he, expect his pe- he expects his people to interpret all things as being ordered and ordained by the sovereign hand of God. He expects us to see through, our, through his eyes, through a lens of faith, all things being ordered and ordained by God. This is one of the great comforts that you and I have as believers in Christ alone. We have that comfort. It is this, that our lives are never at the mercy of the events of life. Our lives are never at the mercy of the events of life. It's just happening, and and there is no rhyme or reason to it. No, God is in control. And he is working something out. The tragedies, the pains, the confusions of this world are all are all under the sovereign hand of God. And because our lives are hidden in Christ, our times are safely in his hands. We will be well. All is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. So the book of Esther shouts out to us, have faith in God. Live by faith and not by sight. Don't live life looking to the world. Don't live life looking to the newspapers. Don't live life looking to the politicians or to the doctors or to secular education for reasons for explaining the happenings of the world. Rather, live your life on the basis of the promises and character of God. That's how we live. Anchor your life, root your life in God. Whose ways are perfect, though his ways at times be mysterious. If you've trusted in Christ alone for your salvation, then your life is in the hands of sovereign God. Trust him. This is what the book of Esther is about. Isaiah 46, 10, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, which have been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. The book of Esther is about the sovereignty of God. Secondly, what is the great subject of the book of Esther? The great subject of the book of Esther is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that may sound strange. The book of Esther is about the Lord Jesus Christ. How is that possible? Not mention, no, not one mention of God, not one mention of Christ, not one mention even of prayer. How then is it possible to say that the great subject of the book of Esther is the Lord Jesus Christ? Listen closely. I am not saying that the book of Esther is not about Esther. It is about Esther. But foundationally. At its core, the book of Esther is about the Lord Jesus Christ. When you read any portion of Scripture, you must learn to read that portion of Scripture. Listen, close. Very important if you're taking notes. You must learn to read that portion of Scripture in its wider context. When you read any portion of Scripture, you must learn to read that portion In its wider context. What do I mean by that? You must realize that there is something going on beyond just that story. That story is that story, but that story has a cosmic dimension to it. 
There is a grand biblical theology that is being developed from Genesis to Revelation. And you must be able to train yourself to see what that great and grand picture is. Let's go to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. And here's what we mean. After Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden, they tragically cast all of humanity into the depths of depravity. And let's pause for just a moment at the thought of the fall. Don't rush past that thought. We tend to gloss over the tragedy of the fall as if it were some kind of fairy tale. But ponder, if you will, listen now, the great wreckage of the fall, the the great darkness that resulted from the fall and the despair that must have filled the entire earth at the moment of disobedience from Adam and Eve. And amidst the darkness, amidst the wreckage, amidst the despair and the tragedy that sin will always bring. Always. What does the Lord God do? The book of Genesis chapter 3 verse number 8 tells us that God came down and began to walk among his wayward people. God came down. In the midst of their darkness, in the midst of their disobedience, God does not remain aloof. God comes down. And what do they do when God comes? They hide. They hide because of their sin that they had brought upon themselves and upon the rest of the world through their rebellion. But what does the Lord God do? He comes and he seeks them out. They did not look for God. They hid from God. But yet he comes down to seek And to save the lost. Do you see that? And God makes this promise addressing Satan who was disguised as a serpent. serpent, Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. Or crush your head. And you shall bruise his heel. This verse in Genesis, Genesis 3.15, is the lens through which you and I must read the rest of the Bible. This verse in Genesis 3.15 is the lens through which you and I must read the rest of the Bible. The whole of the Bible is an unfolding of this first gospel promise in the Garden of Eden. If you understand the book of Genesis, or specifically if you understand the third chapter, Genesis 1 through 3 of the book of Genesis, the rest of the Bible will make sense to you. The whole Bible, all that you read, is the unfolding development of the opposition between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. All of this is unfolding throughout the rest of Scripture. There is a battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. It is an opposition between those who are opposed to the cause and kingdom of God and those who belong 
to the cause and kingdom of God. Ultimately, this conflict, it comes to a climax at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ when he crushes the head of the serpent of Satan. Satan strikes his heel. The Lord will die, but he will rise. And through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the power of Satan, the power of sin, the power of death are destroyed forever. So then you must ask yourself, then what does this have to do with the book of Esther? That all sounds great. The book of Esther fits into the eternal plan of God. How? Because in the book of Esther, we see conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman come to a dramatic climax. You remember, what is the plan of Haman? Who is opposing the the cause of God? He wants to exterminate the Jews. He wants genocide on the Jews. He goes to the king. Esther chapter 3 verse 8. There was a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those who are, from those of other people. And they do not keep the king's laws. So that it is not the king's profit to tolerate them. Listen. If it please the king, let a decree Let it be decreed that they be destroyed. Destroy them. Let's get rid of them. Let's destroy them. What is the issue? So what if they die? So what if the Jews die? What is the great consequence of the destruction of the Jews? It is not simply the future of the Jews that is at stake. It is the future of the gospel promise of God from Genesis chapter 3.15. Do you see that? It is the future of the gospel promise of God contained within the Jews, contained within the people that is at stake. Not so much Esther, not so much Mordecai. It is the people of God that God has promised that a seed will come through that is contained within these people that is at stake. And I spoke, I misspoke last week. Esther is not in the genealogy of Christ. She's not. So saving the Jews was not just to preserve Esther, but rather God preserves the people of Israel because through them, the promised seed of Abraham would come. From among the Jews would come a deliverer, the incarnate Savior, the the Lord Jesus Christ. So God was preserving what? The gospel. God was preserving the gospel from Genesis 3.15. The gospel encased within the people of, of the Jewish nation. He is preserving the gospel. Brothers and sisters, this is what the book of Esther is all about. On the one hand, the book is to explain why the Feast of Purim exists. We talked about that last week. Yet behind the curtain, if you will, if you dig deeper, The book of Esther testifies to God's relentless resolve to fulfill his promise to raise up a deliverer who will crush the head of the serpent. That's what it's about. And he is bringing to pass the covenant of redemption made between the Trinity, three and one, one and three. The father gives the son a bride and the son comes to rescue that bride. The spirit calls that bride to his son. That is what's being accomplished through the saving of the people of Israel. That's what's being God is preserving the gospel. And guess what? 
encased in you today. God is preserving you. Why? Because also within you lies the gospel. You are to pass it on and God is preserving you. Why? He is preserving a people so that the gospel promise may reach those to whom he has called. It is very possible that when the Lord Jesus Christ walked with those disciples on the road to Emmaus, and as he interpreted all the scriptures that he began to show them, that the book of Esther was not about Esther, brothers. The book of Esther was about preserving the Jews so that the gospel promise seed of Abraham could be born and that he could die and that he could raise and that you could have life. That is what the book of Esther is about. And finally, the book of Esther is about how God relentlessly pursues fulfilling his promises. God is a promise keeping God. God is a covenant keeping God. The book of Esther is a witness to this. God promises to send a deliverer. And in the fullness of time, the the deliverer comes in the Lord Jesus Christ. But God also promises, listen, that he will build his church. And that the gates of hell, the difficulties of this world, the perplexities of this world will not prevail against the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 16, 18. In that promise, God will also fulfill relentlessly. To the building up, to the sustaining, and to the strengthening, to the preserving of his church. You, brothers and sisters, are his church. We, as believers in Christ alone, we should never be despondent. We should never be downcast. And coming from me, from my mouth, that seems hypocritical because I know what it is to be despondent. I know what it is to be downcast. We are human, yes. But we must Always proclaim with hearts of faith, the Lord reigns. Let the nations tremble, the Lord reigns. There is no need for us to be despondent. There is no need for us to despair because God, the sovereign one, is relentlessly pursuing his purposes in this world. Jesus said in John 16, 33, in this world you will have tribulation. Trouble will come. Don't be surprised when it does. Don't be surprised when it doesn't knock on your door or ring your doorbell, but kicks your door open. And when it does, take heart. Be encouraged. Don't despair. He says, I have overcome the world. Be encouraged. You are in Christ. Christ is in you. Therefore, take heart. Take heart. Christ is is in you. He has overcome the world. God, who relentlessly pursues the fulfillment of his promises, how then will he bring all of this to climax? How will he end all of this? Jesus Christ will return. That's how this will, as we know it, end. There is more that we don't know, but that is yet to come. What we do understand is that the Lord Jesus Christ will return. He will return and he will judge the living and the dead. And brothers and sisters, how will you fare on that day? How will you fare on the day when God finally fulfills the promise of his return and separates the living from the dead? How will you stand on that day? God has promised to bring it to pass. And if we learn anything about the book of Esther, 
we learn that God keeps his promises. I want to encourage you this morning, if you are not a believer, that God is holy and you have sinned against him in Adam. You cannot and will not come to Christ on your own. You are, as the Bible calls or as scripture describes, you are depraved in mind, in will and desire. And you would be lost in your sin. You would have no choice in your own self, no way of coming to God, no way of gaining any right standing before God. If it were not for God, by his grace and in his his mercy, sending his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to live a life in perfect obedience to God. To die death that we deserved and to rise from the dead, conquering sin, death and the grave. And now he calls you who have ears to hear to repent of your sin and turn to Christ for your salvation. Because it is only in Christ alone that you can be saved. You cannot save yourself. You cannot do enough good to save yourself. There is no good thing. All good deeds are like filthy rags before God. Cast yourself at the mercy seat of God. Throw yourself at the foot of the cross. Turn to him. Repent of your sins. Place your faith in Christ alone. And understand this. That in this world you will have tribulation. Do you realize that he was speaking to to believers when he said this? Not non-believers. In this world you will have trouble, believers. There will be a great cost in following Christ. But the cost is nothing in comparison to the reward that we have in Christ. I encourage you. Repent of your sins. Turn to Christ this morning. Find him to be a perfect savior for your soul. Let us stand. And now, Lord, we come to your table this morning. To celebrate you. Who is the fulfillment of God and all of his promises. Over 300 prophecies concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. And one by one you walk along and check them off the list of fulfillment. You have through the cross and through your resurrection. Saved a particular people, a peculiar people. For your purposes, for your plans, for your glory and for our good. We come this morning to celebrate redemption that has been accomplished in the Lord Jesus Christ. For his sheep who hear and know his voice. We come to celebrate redemption that is applied to his sheep. To his disciples To those who have placed their faith in Christ alone. And we. We look forward to. The fulfillment of the promise. That you will one day come. And capture us up Lord with you. Maranatha. Maranatha. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, come. 